Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 474 for January 3rd, 2016. This week, if you're still looking for a worthwhile resolution, how about improving your computer's backup system? Or if you don't yet have a backup system in place, how about establishing one? Fraudsters are getting better every day. Millions of email messages containing links to malware are sent out each and every day. So are legitimate-looking requests that could give a thief enough information to steal your money or your entire identity. In short circuits, Apple will pay Italy $350 million to settle tax evasion charges. Although I spent a lot of time talking about Windows 10 in 2015, it has been a busy year for other platforms too, Android in particular, so we'll take a look at some of Android's big deals for 2015. Sometimes during the first program of the year, I reveal lots of new features on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Sometimes it's big changes in formatting, sometimes the changes are relatively minor. This year, they're all but non-existent, but I'll tell you what to look for. And in spare parts, only on the website, WatchGuard Technologies has released a list of the top 10 threats they expect to make life miserable for some of us in 2016. And SanDisk Corporation and Quanta Cloud Technology announce a plan to combine SanDisk's flash drive experience with QTC's data center expertise. The goal is to provide massively scalable solid-state storage for data centers. It's a couple of days past the start of the new year, but if you're still looking for a worthwhile resolution that's easy to keep, now would be a good time to decide to improve your computer backup system. Or if you don't yet have a backup system this would be a great time to implement one. This is a topic that I revisit about once a year because it is so important. Around the end of 2015, I added some extra resources. Although one of them isn't yet reliable, it's simply another option that might work if I need to restore a file. And I discovered a new version of GoodSync that's coming soon. It'll be well worth the small upgrade fee. I'll get to good sync in a moment. First, let's take a look at the semi-clunker of the bunch. I qualified for a year's worth of unlimited storage using Amazon's Cloud Drive. After the first year, the cost will be $60 a year. Unlimited storage is an attractive offer, especially at $60. But Cloud Drive, which is not to be confused with Amazon's S3 storage, is a new offering, and it really doesn't work very well. Amazon Cloud Drive doesn't offer file syncing. That's something that most backup services do, and the Amazon Desktop app is extremely basic. By that, I mean that updating files is cumbersome at best, and it's impossible to share folders. There's no file versioning, so if you replace a good file with a bad file, you're out of luck. There's also no way to schedule backups, or is there? The new version of GoodSync works with just about every type of storage you can think of, from a disk on the computer you're backing up to Windows shared folders, from SkyDrive to Google Drive, and from GoodSync Connect and FTP to CloudDrive and Dropbox, and several more too. 
So I connected some of my backups to Amazon Cloud Drive. We'll take a look at how that worked out in a moment. My actual full backup plan is fairly complex. I use a Cronus True Image to create an image of the boot drive, C. That image is updated every week. All files are backed up by Carbonite, but I've found some disturbing holes in the Carbonite backups. Working files are backed up to a local emergency network drive using GoodSync. This is the drive that I would use if the desktop system failed catastrophically and I needed to continue working on a notebook computer. All files from drives D, E, F, and G are backed up weekly using GoodSync to drives that are stored off-site. Drives H and I contain only temporary and scratch files, so they aren't backed up at all. So the key players here are Acronis, Carbonite, and GoodSync. Adding Amazon Cloud Drive seemed like a quick and easy way to add one more layer of redundancy. So I replicated some of the weekly backup sets in a way that files that are sent to USB drives once a week would also be backed up to Cloud Drive once a day. The process worked well with smaller directories, but large directories failed with an Amazon server error number 503. Amazon, of course, professed that its server is working reliably. I believe that I finally convinced them that the server 503 error means that there is a problem with the server. In Amazon's defense, the company has offered to work with me to resolve the problem. In my defense, there's not much I can do from this side of the wire if their server stops responding. The problem wouldn't be too bad if the server error would eventually clear so that the backup could continue. But it doesn't. Once the error occurs, it can persist for hours, and in some cases, for days. That calls into question the entire system's reliability. I have discussed the problem with technicians at GoodSync. Amazon's S3 storage, they tell me, is stable and works well. The cost for one terabyte of storage on S3, though, is about $290 a year for the bargain service, $360 a year for standard service, plus additional charges that depend on inbound and outbound traffic. That's a far cry from the $60 a year for Cloud Drive. Amazon Cloud Drive uses a new application program interface, or API, and GoodSync's technicians say that they can see the problems, including the one I've reported. GoodSync offered to send me a special version of the application, one that creates enormous log files, with the suggestion that I might want to show the tracer log to Amazon's technicians. That way they can see what the sequence of API commands are that cause the problem. Assuming I'll need to set aside several hours to work my way from the Tier 1 technicians up to somebody who can actually discuss the problem intelligently, I haven't yet had time to do what needs to be done. In the interim, Amazon Cloud Service is unreliable for backing up some of my most critical files. Now granted, they're already backed up to a local drive, to drives that are stored off-site, and probably to Carbonite but that extra layer of security would be welcome. One of the key features I haven't yet used but plan to is the option to set up a peer-to-peer -peer connection between two computers via GoodSync Connect. This allows files to be backed up from one computer to another without the need for an intermediate server. It does require that GoodSync be installed on both computers, but additional licenses for GoodSync are very reasonably priced. In addition to all that and all of the cloud-based services I mentioned, GoodSync allows for backup operations or synchronize operations. Think of backup as a one-way operation and synchronize as a two-way operation. You can also decide whether you want file deletions to be propagated 
or if you want a file to persist on the backup drive even after it's been deleted from the original disk. Besides being able to schedule backups, users can have GoodSync monitor directories and backup changed files immediately or following a delay. A directory with files that change frequently might be set to backup the changed files after 15 minutes, or an hour, or three hours. Alternatively, you can schedule backups so that GoodSync will analyze the files and backup the changed files every hour, every day, every week, or on whatever schedule you want. GoodSync claims the application is much faster than other synchronization programs and it takes less memory. Although I haven't been able to test the memory claim, it is without question the fastest backup application I have ever used. GoodSync says it can analyze a job with 1,000 files and folders on each side in less than 10 minutes on only 500 megabytes of memory. GoodSync can also copy locked files using the Windows Volume Shadow Copy service. To avoid access denied errors, one GoodSync component runs in an elevated mode so that backups won't require user intervention. The updated user interface in version 10, which is now available in beta, makes visualization of backup and synchronization jobs easy. Individual jobs can be included in groups and then run individually or as part of the group. Multiple folders may be backed up or synchronized in a single job, and you don't have to back up all of the files in a folder. You can specify files to include or exclude. GoodSync, unlike many other applications, recognizes when backup files are being sent to a USB drive. I've seen other applications become hopelessly confused when, for whatever reason, a USB drive that was previously mounted as drive J, for example, is suddenly mounted as drive N. In that case, the backup application can't find the target drive and fails. GoodSync eliminates this problem by using the drive's volume name. Security is important to the developers, and it might be important to you, too. Best security practices call for encrypting sensitive data when it's at rest, which means on a disk drive locally or in the cloud, and when it's on the wire, in other words, when it's being transferred from one place to another. And here, on the wire may also mean over the air if a Wi-Fi connection is involved. Encrypting on the wire makes sense only if the files are being stored elsewhere. In that case, you'd need to use an FTP server that supports secure FTP. Encrypting the files is accomplished by selecting a checkbox on one of the option screens and then providing a password. For even more robust security, you can encrypt the file names, too. Although Carbonite is a key part of my backup, and I can't imagine operating a computer without an image backup of the boot disk, it's hard to imagine a more complete, more versatile backup application for files and folders than GoodSync. I have a couple of bottom lines here. Two cats for Amazon Cloud Drive. It works, but not particularly well, so it gets only two cats. Although I'd like to recommend Amazon Cloud Drive, I can do so only if you want to use Amazon's exceedingly weak interface and plan to upload your files only once. Possibly when Amazon releases the next version of their application program interface, they'll eliminate the bugs that result in server errors that stall the service. If that happens, I'll be able to give it more than just a lukewarm recommendation. You can find additional details on the Amazon website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And for GoodSync, 5Cats, the latest version of GoodSync, can be your key to reliable backup. Having used GoodSync for many years, I can unconditionally recommend it. 
Additional options and a completely new user interface in the latest version simply make it a better deal. If you have multiple computers, the cost of additional licenses for each is very reasonable. Find additional details about GoodSync on the GoodSync website. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Although most of us are getting better when it comes to spotting clearly fraudulent email messages, the fraudsters are getting better too. All it takes is a moment's inattention to be victimized. Millions of email messages containing links to malware are sent out every day. So are millions of messages that contain sometimes legitimate-looking requests that can give a thief enough information to steal your money or even your entire identity. Some of the messages are so obviously fraudulent that most people dismiss them immediately. Sorting out legitimate messages from the spam and fraudulent messages is getting harder, but there are several indicators you can look for. My first rule is simply to consider every message fraudulent until I have a good reason to believe it. Then I look for reasons to push me in the direction of confirming that the message is a fake or providing reasons to possibly considering it to be legitimate. If you have a decent understanding of grammar and spelling, Examining the message for errors is an easy way to spot a fraud. Large companies and government agencies rarely send messages with spelling or grammar errors. That's because the message will have been written and reviewed by marketing and communications professionals and probably will have been examined by the company's legal department. If you see lots of errors, you can safely assume the message is fraudulent. I also review the message to determine whether it seems to be reasonable. You might receive a message that claims to be from the Internal Revenue Service or a law enforcement agency. Simply put, the IRS, the FBI, and other government agencies don't send messages stating you're going to be arrested if you don't settle some claim immediately. So if the message contains a threat, stated or implied, treat it with extreme caution. Take a look at where the message came from. The from address can be easily forged and URLs embedded in the message can display one domain while directing your browser to another. Nearly every email client will show you the real link when you hover the mouse cursor over the link. If the displayed URL says yourbigbank.com, but what you see when you hover your mouse over the link is creepyguy.br, it's a fraud. Clicking the link would take you to a Brazilian website, and that's probably not where your bank is. Likewise, the IRS or the FBI won't have links to sites in Bulgaria. The fraudsters can be pretty convincing, though. Sometimes they obtain domain names that look almost real, or they configure subdomains so that they look legitimate. Perhaps you receive a message offering an all-expense-paid vacation in Disneyland. All you have to do is follow the link to Disneyland.com.fraudstersite.com. Click that link and you won't go to a Disney site, but to a fraudster site where the fake subdomain has been created, making it look like it's related to Disneyland. This is a very common trick. If a message asks for too much information or information the sender should already have, it's probably fraudulent. Your bank will never send you a message about an account problem and then ask you for the account number. The bank already has that. Any message that asks for account confirmation is automatically suspect in my mind. Another obvious clue is any offer that seems to be too good to be true. 
90% off the cost of a new car, an iPad tablet for 15 bucks, or a free flight to Rome. Yeah, they're all in that category. And the message is even more suspicious if you're told that you must act immediately, or you receive a message stating that you've won a lottery, particularly if it's one you've never heard of and didn't enter. Phishing messages sometimes tell you that you need to send a few dollars to cover expenses or fees or taxes. When this happens, you should hear a loud alarm bell in your head. But sometimes the clues are really subtle. You might have a vague feeling that something just doesn't seem quite right. Maybe the message you have looks legitimate. The appropriate logo is present. Spelling and grammar are flawless. I said the scammers are getting better. The offer doesn't appear to be too good to be true, although it is a very good one. Well, when you're not 100% certain that the message is legitimate, just don't click any link in it. If you think it might be legitimate, for example, a message from your bank citing a missing payment, then open a browser and manually type the bank's URL. Log in normally and use the bank's site to request information. Or just pick up the phone and call the bank. If you avoid clicking links in these messages, you'll be safe. The fraudsters are getting smarter. They're getting better. That means we all have to be more aware of the dangers. In short circuits, Apple will pay Italy $350 million to settle tax evasion charges. Many multinational companies have arranged to be taxed in countries where the rates are low, Ireland, for example. But the European Union is beginning to force companies to pay taxes in each country where they operate. This is the first of several cases initiated by Italy. Starbucks and Fiat have both been ordered to pay back taxes. Starbucks in Luxembourg, Fiat in the Netherlands. Apple has agreed to pay $350 million in tax liabilities for the years 2008 through 2013. What's not clear is whether this agreement will halt a criminal tax evasion probe into the actions of three Apple employees. Apple CEO Tim Cook denies that the company is trying to evade taxes, telling the CBS News program 60 Minutes that Apple pays every tax dollar we owe. The fact that Apple has agreed to pay seems to suggest, though, that the company is tacitly admitting its actions were a little less than totally honest. Although $350 million is chump change to Apple, the event does tarnish the company's reputation, as have other issues such as working conditions in China, where many of the company's products are made. Although I spent a lot of time talking about Windows 10 in 2015, it was a busy year for other platforms too, Android in particular. Android Auto could help drivers or just be another distraction. Those who have driven cars with the built-in applications say it's an excellent navigation system. NFC is becoming more usable. NFC is the abbreviation for Near Field Communication, a wireless connectivity technology for short-range communication between electronic devices. It is particularly prominent in point-of-sale functions. Increasing numbers of retailers now accept mobile payments, but it's still not as convenient as users had hoped. Both Google and Samsung are actively pushing mobile payments, 
but it's going to take a while for them to convince users. Security updates are becoming more frequent, and that is one of the good things that came from the stage fright flaw that reared its head in the summer. It's a rare day that one or more applications I use on Android devices or the operating system itself aren't updated. And speaking of operating systems, Lollipop has been replaced by Marshmallow. Lollipop's main changes dealt with the user interface, but Marshmallow gives users more control over how the operating system actually works. It puts users in control of what most applications have permission to do. Phones and small tablets now have cameras that rival point-and-shoot cameras. Manufacturers realized that improving the camera hardware in their phones would make the phones more popular. Apple's iOS devices have long held the lead in adding good cameras to phones and tablets. But the graphics capabilities of Android devices is strong enough that Adobe has started porting some of its applications to Android. Nexus devices were big in 2015, even though they're small. Google announced two new Nexus smartphones, the Nexus 6P and the Nexus 5X. Both have received excellent reviews. Not much happened on the tablet front, though. Oh, and I shouldn't forget cardboard. For just a few bucks, you can buy a holder for your Android phone and create a virtual reality device. Google has even expanded cardboard to Apple phones. Check it out. There's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website that'll take you to Google's cardboard site. Sometimes in the first program of the year, I reveal lots of new features on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Sometimes there are big changes in formatting. Sometimes the changes are relatively minor. This year, they're all but non-existent. Here's what you'll find if you look really hard. The current program and podcast tab at the top of the page has a search function. The programs by year tab adds 2016. There's a return to top link near the bottom of the screen so you can pop back up to the top to check out spare parts. And the copyright date now spans the years 1993 to 2016. Well, that's really exciting stuff, huh? Oh, and speaking of spare parts, only on the website, this week WatchGuard Technologies releases a list of the top 10 threats they expect to make life miserable for some of us in 2016. And SanDisk Corporation and Quanta Cloud Technology have announced a plan to combine SanDisk's flash drive experience with QTC's data center expertise. The goal is to provide massively scalable solid-state storage for data centers. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.